They're called the forever chemicals because they never break down or go away. They don't exist in nature and nature doesn't know what to do with them. And that includes your body. They're in your home or apartment, lurking in your carpet, your upholstery, your ski jacket or raincoat, even your mascara, shampoo or shaving cream. You breathe them in or they get absorbed by your skin. They're even in your food and the water you make your tea with. And they're linked to kidney and testicular cancer, as well as endocrine disruption. Chemical companies have been lying to us about these chemicals for years. This is the story of PFAS, and this is Green Street. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Green Street. Doug and Patty Wood and our network of scientists, medical professionals, authors, journalists, and activists all here to help you understand a bit more about what's going on and how you can live a better, safer, and healthier life in this increasingly toxic world. One thing we know for certain, companies involved in making products that can harm us or our children aren't generally going to come forward and tell us about it until they absolutely positively have to. They'll find ways to hide the information they have, find scientists who will conduct studies to say there's no problem, and lobby members of Congress to protect them with middle-of-the-night legislation that extinguishes their liability. Sadly, too often, this is how we deal with public health issues in the United States. Some of you may have seen the movie Dark Waters with Mark Ruffalo about the class of chemicals known as PFAS, P-F-A-S, and how the DuPont company lied about their toxicity for years, causing all sorts of medical problems for people who happen to live near the factory. On today's show, you're going to get to meet the amazing Dr. Arlene Blum of the Green Science Policy Institute and how she has taken on the issue of eliminating PFAS from our lives, not by challenging the industry, but by working with them. She's like the lion tamer of the chemical industry, an amazing woman who's dedicated her life to making all of ours a little bit better and safer. That's all coming up on this edition of Green Street. But first, here's Patty Wood with the Green Street News. What do you got for us today? Three very interesting articles. Uh, so just a quick one at first. It was published in Environmental Health News, uh, written by Peter Dykstra, dated November 15th, and it is entitled A Political Sea Change. How the Georgia runoff vote and President-elect Biden's department appointees will shape the next four years of environmental policy. The post-election mood of the country is predictably fuzzy. Euphoria among Biden followers, denial in Magaland, and here in my home state of Georgia, a bit of shock that two Senate races may determine the nation's and the Biden presidency's fate. A double victory for the Dems would leave a Senate of 50 Republicans, 48 Democrats, and two independents who caucus with the Dems, with Vice President-elect Kamala Harris standing by to break tie votes. In other words, the thinnest of Democratic majorities, but maybe the biggest of opportunities. Biden has pledged to restore U.S. participation in the Paris Climate Accord on his first day in office. His Department of Energy and other agencies can cold-start programs buried by President Trump. 
Then there are the Trump rollbacks to benefit industry that industry never asked for and doesn't necessarily even want. Last week, Royal Dutch Shell called for a cancellation of Trump's rollback of methane emissions from fracking operations. Yes, you heard that right. Two years ago, the administration proposed freezing corporate average fuel efficiency, or the CAFE standards, after 2020. The Obama standards would have progressively tightened fuel efficiency through at least 2025, which the big automakers were fine with. Behind a public pledge to drain the swamp, President Trump installed heads of the Interior and Energy Department and EPA who were openly hostile to their agency's missions. None of the three lasted Trump's full term, but each, Ryan Zinke, Rick Perry, and Scott Pruitt, left deep scars in federal policy on environment, energy, and climate. Biden will have his hands full, and if the Dems fail to oust Mitch McConnell and the Republicans from control of the Senate, he'll have an even more difficult time. Yeah, we're in for a real fight. This Georgia election is super, super important. Yep, and I, you know, nobody is saying that it's going either way. It seems like it's going to be a pretty close, yeah. close election. Okay. Okay, so another one, interesting, um, published in the New York Times, actually dated December 3rd, and is written by Katrin Einhorn, and the title is How Scientists Tracked Down a Mass Killer of Salmon. About 20 years ago, ambitious restoration projects had brought coho salmon back to urban creeks in the Seattle area. But after it rained, the fish would display strange behaviors, listing to one side, rolling over, swimming in circles, and within hours, they would die. To be running into these sick fish was fairly astonishing, said Jennifer McIntyre, now a toxicologist and professor at Washington State University, who is part of a team that years later has finally solved the mystery of the dying salmon around Puget Sound. In those early years, we debated intensely what could be the cause of this. The team's findings were published Thursday in the journal Science. The investigation began with a forensic examination. Was it a metal or some other chemical in the water? Nothing they could find. A problem with the temperature? No. Perhaps lack of oxygen? The salmon looked as though they were suffocating, but they had plenty to breathe. There was no evidence of disease or pesticide exposure, but the connection to rain and the lack of any other explanation led Dr. McIntyre and her team to focus on runoff from roads. What's in that mixture, Dr. McIntyre recalled thinking? This is just water that's on the road. It's what we tramp through in our rain boots. It must be something that people don't regularly measure. Using a machine called a high-resolution mass spectrometer to compare the chemical composition of highway runoff with that of water collected from two urban creeks where the salmon were dying is where they started. The sample shared chemicals related to tire particles, so the team brewed up a test concoction by soaking shredded tire tread in water. The salmon died. A PhD student suggested a new way to separate out the chemicals that led to a prime suspect, but they couldn't test it because they didn't know what it was. But then the aha moment came one morning. Guessing that the mystery chemical had transformed from a substance originally added to the tire, they looked for a compound whose carbon and nitrogen molecules matched, ignoring the oxygen and hydrogen since the latter are more likely to be altered when a chemical transformed. In an Environmental Protection Agency report on tire rubber, they found a match, an antioxidant called 6-PPD. The researchers ordered the smallest amount they could, about a pound of purple pellets. And when they oxidized the substance, the resulting chemical looked just like the one they had worked so hard to isolate from the tire water. It was time to test the version of 6-PPD on the salmon. 
The killer was the six PPD from the tires in the roadway runoff. The analysis that they did is quite amazing, said Nancy Denslow, a professor and director of aquatic toxology at the University of Florida who was not affiliated with the study. She also praised the large number of authors. It's wonderful to see big groups of people coming together to solve problems, she said. Group science is fantastic. Their answer raises so many questions, however, that Dr. McIntyre, the toxicologist who watched disoriented salmon in creeks 15 years ago, now has even more work to do. She has forthcoming research about how roadway runoff affects some other species of fish, not so dramatically, but there are still consequences. The team is also in conversations with the tire industry and hopes manufacturers will be willing to look for a replacement preservative. The scientists are concerned about broader health impacts from the chemicals in tires, including on humans, especially because tires are often recycled to make artificial turf for sports fields. It seems to me that there could be an inhalation of those finer particles, Dr. McIntyre said. Now you've got that leaching happening on young athletes' lung tissue. While chemicals have always surrounded us, within the last hundred years, humans have been making them synthetically. We've been synthesizing them faster than we can keep up. With the results that you're seeing now. Yeah. You know. I mean, I mean, the reason I chose this article is because a lot of people eat salmon. I mean, they're told to eat salmon because it's good. It has all those good omega-3 fatty acids, and it's just a healthy thing for us to consume on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And so it was interesting that, you know, that so many salmon were dying and leave it to the scientists, right? The science to find out why. And then of course that leads to even more questions and more concern because, you know, you and I've been working on synthetic turf issues for a long time. In fact, we're right now working with Mount Sinai School of Medicine on synthetic turf. And here we go, yet another chemical in the synthetic turf infill material because they use these ground up tires that nobody's ever thought about before. And breathing it in is exactly the root of exposure for yeah. a lot of the chemicals in these, yep. in the, the crumb rubber tire infill that they use to, you yep. know, to cushion these fields. Yep. Tons and tons and tons of recycled rubber filled with chemicals like this one you were just talking about. Yep. Oh boy. Okay, well, I guess parents of kids who are playing on synthetic turf fields want to be you know, careful to limit the amount of time they're on. Well, it's all about being informed. And I think parents need to know this stuff. And I think Mount Sinai is going to try their best to to get information out. And they're a trusted source. Yeah, it's just tough when communities have spent millions of dollars. You know, the whole community has gotten behind the new new field that we have, you know. Yeah, everybody can play on it year-round. Yeah, you can play on it in the the driving rain. You can go out there and play if that's what you really have to do. And that's about the only advantage that synthetic turf has over a you know a really good grass all right anyway all right all right this last one is really interesting so bear with me because we had on our last (laughs) show yes we did brilliant researcher and doctor dr beatrice Gollum, talking about the havana syndrome and sure enough the very next week we have an article um and this is uh this comes from nbc news it was uh published on december 5th Uh, written by Brenda Breslauer, Ken Delanian, and Josh Lederman. Um, And it is entitled Havana Syndrome, likely caused by pulsed microwave energy, government study finds. 
The mysterious neurological symptoms experienced by American diplomats in China and Cuba are consistent with the effects of directed microwave energy, according to a long-awaited report by the National Academies of Sciences that cites medical evidence to support the long-held conviction of American intelligence officials. The report, obtained Friday by NBC News, does not conclude that the directed energy was delivered intentionally by a weapon, as some U.S. officials have long believed, but it raises that disturbing possibility. The report was transferred to Congress after bipartisan calls led by U.S. Senator Gene Shaheen, a Democrat from New Hampshire who is a senior member of the Senate Foreign Relations and Armed Services Committee. She issued the following statement. The health effects from these mysterious injuries have tormented those afflicted. Their illnesses and suffering are real and demand a response from Congress. American public servants and their families who have been targeted have requested that Congress receive and review this report, so I'm glad the State Department heeded our bipartisan call so we can get to work. NBC News reported in 2018 that U.S. intelligence officials considered Russia a leading suspect in what some of them assessed to have been deliberate attacks on diplomats and CIA officers overseas. But there was not and is not now conclusive intelligence pointing in that direction, multiple officials who have been briefed on the matter said. A team of medical and scientific experts who studied the symptoms of as many as 40 State Department and other government employees concluded that nothing like them had previously been documented in medical literature, according to the National Academies of Sciences report. Many reported hearing a loud sound and feeling pressure in their heads and then experiencing dizziness, unsteady gait, and visual disturbances. Many suffered long-standing debilitating effects. The committee felt that many of the distinctive and acute signs, symptoms, and observations reported by government employees are consistent with the effects of directed pulsed radio frequency or RF energy, the report says. Studies published in the open literature more than a half century ago and over the subsequent decades by Western and Soviet sources provide circumstantial support for this possible mechanism. While important questions remain, the mere consideration of such a scenario raises grave concerns about a world with disinhibited, malevolent actors and new tools for causing harm to others, as if the U.S. government does not have its hand full already with naturally occurring threats, says the report, edited by Dr. David Relman, a professor in medicine, microbiology, and immunology at Stanford, and Judy Pavlin, a physician who leads the National Academies of Science's Global Health Division in Washington. A source directly familiar with the matter told NBC News that the CIA, using mobile phone location data, had determined that some Russian intelligence agents who had worked on microwave weapons programs were present in the same cities at the same time that CIA officers suffered mysterious symptoms. CIA officials consider that a promising lead, but not conclusive evidence. The State Department, responding to the report, said that each possible cause remains speculative and added that the investigation, now three years old, is still ongoing. Although it praised the National Academies of Sciences for undertaking the effort, the State Department offered a long list of challenges of their study and limitations in the data the academies were given access to, suggesting that the report should not be viewed as conclusive. The study examined four possibilities to explain the symptoms, infection, chemicals, psychological factors, and microwave energy. Overall, directed pulsed RF energy appears to be the most plausible mechanism in explaining these cases among those that the committee considered. The committee cannot rule out other possible mechanisms and considers it likely that a multiplicity of factors explains some cases and the differences between others. The report says that more investigation is required.
In another related article from NBC, they state, Starting in late 2016, U.S. diplomats and other government workers stationed in Havana began hearing strange sounds and experiencing bizarre physical sensations and then fell ill. The incidents caused hearing, balance, and cognitive changes along with mild traumatic brain injury, also known as concussion. More than two dozen U.S. workers who served in Cuba and a smaller number of Canadians were confirmed to have been affected, in addition to one U.S. government worker in China who was judged in 2018 to have experienced similar symptoms. For some of the affected employees, those symptoms have resolved and the individuals have eventually been able to return to relatively normal lives. For others, the effects have lingered and pose an ongoing and significant obstacle to their work and well-being, according to NBC News interviews with U.S. officials who were assessed by the government to have been affected. Cuba has adamantly and consistently denied any knowledge or involvement in the incidents. In late 2018, NBC News reported that U.S. intelligence agencies investigating the incidents considered Russia to be the main suspect based on interviews with three U.S. officials and two others briefed on the investigation. Some outside medical experts uninvolved in the investigation have speculated the workers might have simply suffered from hysteria, but doctors who evaluated the patients at the University of Pennsylvania, including through advanced brain imaging, found differences in their brains, including less white matter and connectivity in the areas that control vision and hearing than similar healthy people. So clearly anybody that is interested in this has got to listen to our show that we had last week with Beatrice Gollum. Absolutely. I mean, she, she was all over explaining exactly why it was RF radiation and not hysteria and not chemicals and not anything else. Or infections, exactly. And she really knows her way around here. You know, it's disturbing. Where where can our listeners find that? Greenstreetradio.com has all of our past shows, so go take a listen to that. It's really fascinating. Interview with Dr. Beatrice Gollum on the Havana Syndrome. Yeah. Uh, really, really interesting stuff. And it ties in so closely to the work that we're doing on RF microwave energy uh, from all of the uh, technology that we're using today in our lives. Well, clearly that's why the government is tiptoeing around the this. issue here. That's yes. right. So it's, all, it's full of all kinds of, well, we're not sure and we need more study and we can't be conclusive. Well, because yeah, but if- that's also how science works. And I understand that until they have, you know, They'll, they have really a, a really big body of evidence. They're not going to say it. But it's also, I'm sure they're getting, I mean, also I think they're getting pressured by the industry. Well, that was going to be my point, was okay. that at this point, government can't come out and say, well, gee, RF microwave radiation causes these problems because we got a billion trillion dollar industry that's out there and being pushed by the government to Exposing expand. the entire public. The other thing that was I found interesting about that is that they traced the Russian scientists through their cell phones. Really? So they knew exactly what's, what city they were in at what time. It just shows you what the government knows about everybody that's carrying a smartphone around with them who thinks they're so smart, and actually they are the product, not the... We've said am, this, am I the only person before. in America that's not being tracked? Because I don't have a smartphone. I believe so, Patty. You're wow. unique in many very ways. Very exciting. All right. Thanks a lot. <laughs> You're welcome.
We know a lot of great people in the world of environmental health, and we're so lucky to have this show where we have an opportunity to introduce them to you. Today, you're going to meet one of the most special people we know. Dr. Arlene Blum is a mountain climber. Literally, she climbs gigantic mountains like Mount Everest. She led an all-woman ascent of the Annapurna, a climb that was also the first successful American ascent. She was also deputy leader of the first all-woman ascent of Denali and the first American woman to attempt Mount Everest. So maybe that's why Dr. Arlene Blum doesn't shy away from challenges. In addition to her career climbing mountains, she is also the founder, executive director, and the driving force behind the Green Science Policy Institute, which is achieving outstanding results in eliminating toxins from our environment. We spoke with our friend Arlene Blum this weekend, and I asked her to first tell us a little bit about the Green Science Policy Institute. Here's our interview with Dr. Arlene Blum. So the Green Science Policy Institute is made up of PhD scientists who do research with, in collaboration with leading scientists all over the world with the goal of reducing harm from chemicals that are unfortunately in everyday products. Mm -hmm. And so we design experiments, we decide, you know, what is the science that's needed, and then we communicate our science really broadly. And over the years, have established very good relationships with leading people, uh, staffers in the House and Senate, uh, in Sacramento, California government, the city of San Francisco. And we also work with big companies who want healthy workplaces using the same idea of, of thinking about reducing harm from chemicals. Yeah, it's a it's a it's big issue. Big issue and yeah. uh, a lot to a lot to do knowing how uh, we regulate chemicals in this country uh, and how we have made very little progress doing so and it takes for ever just for a single chemical i mean we're very involved with pesticides and you know it takes decades to review you know a chemical and to uh you know to think about banning it but let's just talk about these chemicals that you're working on that are like pesticides they're all part of the same class of chemicals and your organization really focuses on classes of chemicals, types of chemicals, and, you know, works on getting them all banned rather than having one banned and then another one in that same, um, that same family, you know, is a substitute for it. It's like this game of whack-a-mole. Well, there are tens of thousands of industrial chemicals, and as you've said, very few of them have ever been regulated. And so what we realized is when you look at all these chemicals, they're actually a handful of families or classes that contain a majority of the harmful chemicals, mm -hmm. and we know what they are. And so we think about families in classes, but we don't necessarily ban them all. We sort of put a red flag on them, mm -hmm. uh, saying, let's look at these really closely before we use them so we don't, as you said, do the whack-a-mole of going from one chemical to its chemical cousin that would have the same structure, function, and potential for harm. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have worked a lot on flame retardants, and now we're focused a lot on chemicals called PFAS, and that's a big mouthful, per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, but what they are is uh, stain and water repellent chemicals, and the reason they're so harmful is the bond between carbon and fluorine 
uh, is one of the strongest bonds in the periodic table. And these molecules are called forever chemicals because they never go away. And the handful that have been studied have all been found to cause um, serious harm to human health. And the good news is that there are serious efforts now to really limit their use to where they're essential and to not just use them because they're forever. You know, the, the chemical used to make your Teflon frying pan or your Gore-Tex jacket will be on the planet a million years from now. They, they just never go away. Right. And so let's talk to our audience a little bit, if you could explain to them, you know, the, the type of products that they would have in their home or that they might be considering purchasing for holiday gifts this year that would contain these PFAS chemicals. Well, anything that's marked stain or waterproof would be a subject of concern, you know, like a, 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 a rain jacket or a waterproof tablecloth. But they're actually used in a lot of other products where it's not so obvious. For example, they're used in cosmetics, they're used in food packaging, they're used in some kinds of paints and building materials. So I actually should suggest that we have a website called sixclasses.org where we, we talk about these sorts of chemicals, the six classes, and we have like four-minute videos. So one thing we suggest to people is going to sixclasses.org and just checking out uh, the four-minute video about these PFAS chemicals. And that lists a bunch of the uses and also some consumer suggestions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I can reel off more of the uses. No, you know, you don't have to. I think that's a great thing. And I, I yeah. have been to the, I've been to your site, uh, sixclasses.org. It really is very well done. It's uh, easy to understand. It just, you know, it just gives you the, the basic information. And then here's where these chemicals are found. Um, but how do these chemicals actually get into our bodies? Well, several ways. One is through food and drinking water because the manufacture of products can lead to contaminating both drinking water and food. In fact, people have seen there was a great movie called Dark Waters. Mm-hmm. Is the story of a campaigning attorney, um, Rob Ballot, played by Mark Ruffalo with his wife Anne Hathaway, and it's a really great film uh, describing a communities in West Virginia and Ohio which were contaminated by uh, a Teflon production plant. Mm -hmm. And the drinking water and the air and the land were all contaminated, and the people had a lot of health problems. And actually, the lawyer won a lawsuit, and he used the money to do health studies. And that first showed the health harm. In that case, it was a lot from drinking water, but unfortunately, they make their way into their our food supply. And then there can be exposure from products. They used to be used on carpeting and on furnishings quite a lot, and some of the highest levels ever found in people came from carpeting exposure and from carpet cleaning products. Hmm. And, and you know, it's a question of education. If you say to a mom, you can have a white shag carpet and drop Coca-Cola and red wine on it, <laughs> but there's going to be a chemical that's going to be in your kids' bodies for the rest of their lives, practically, that's harmful. 
and is going to be on the planet forever, she might decide that she doesn't need this white jag carpet. Yeah, yeah. Maybe she'd go for a black and brown speckled carpet. <laughs> yeah. Or if she really needed it, then we really need green chemistry to look for suggest alternatives. And there are companies developing alternatives. But yep. the good news, so you don't get worried about your carpets, is that we worked with the uh, major carpet producing companies. They were all in Dalton, Georgia, and they all came to Berkeley and, and met with us and learned that what they were doing, the chemicals really were a source of concern. And they had done what you called one of those whack-a-moles, where they went for some old kinds of PFAS that were no longer made to some new kinds. And we explained to them that no kinds are good. And they actually, a couple of years ago, made a commitment by January 1st, 2020, to phase out the whole class from American carpets, and that's what happened. So new carpets purchased this year should not have any PFAS. So that big source of exposure in our homes is, is going away. That's, so, so, that's so great. Are, are they using something else instead of um, PFAS chemicals to make them stain and water resistant? They are, um, but it's not PFAS, so it's better. Okay. So, doesn't have that carbon fluorine bond. And they're probably not quite the stain and water resistant. You know, we were curious. They they thought maybe they'd get returns because, you know, the the function wasn't quite as good. Mm -hmm. But the last I heard, they're not getting returns, that it's not a big difference. And we kind of That's a win. That's a a real win, a big win. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, on furnishings, Again, you know, you buy your couch and they say, do you want it to be stain and water repellent? And you say, sure. And then they spray PFAS all over it, which, <laughs> which ends up in you and your family. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Talk to, um, like, Kaiser Permanente stopped the use of PFAS in mm-hmm. their furnishings. And mm-hmm. Harvard, we have what I call our material buyers club. And Harvard and Kaiser are a couple of the members. And they all stopped the use in their furnishings several years ago. And they've reported that there doesn't seem to be any more problem with stains. So this is not a scientific experiment. We would like to back this up with a real rigorous scientific experiment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of word of mouth. Right. But we've heard this from uh, some fabric manufacturers that it really doesn't appear like the benefit is that big. And, of course, the potential for harm is huge. Sure. So, yeah. This is really t- terrific news about the carpet. But I wanted to ask you, this, this chemical is so, you know, so widely used in our environment. What does it actually do? Well, that's right. It, it gives stain and water repellency. Right. And they're also very slippery molecules, so they're used in a lot of industrial processes. So they are really widely used. A big use that's led to contamination is firefighting foam that was used mm-hmm. at airports and mm-hmm. by the military mm-hmm. to stop oil and gas fires. And other countries do use alternatives, and I, the U.S. is moving that way. Um, the military budget from last year told the military that they had to stop using PFAS in their firefighting foam in the next few years, mm-hmm. and they are. So, and one thing we worked on that was successful uh, was legislation to allow the FDA at domestic airports not to use PFAS. Mm-hmm. And, and this actually passed and was signed into law last year. Right. So the FAA no longer, um, they, they haven't done it yet, but they can um, 
now legally move away from using any PFAS. We're living here on Long Island um, outside of New York City, and you know we have a, a, a sole source aquifer, and two of the emerging contaminants that we've started testing for, anyway, they're not really emerging, but contaminants that people are, are realizing are in our water, um, are PFAS and 1,4-dioxane. Uh, and they're really hard to, to get out of the water, public water supplies. So, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of talk about it. And there's a lot of talk about firefighting training places uh, that use it. And we have quite a few military airports as well as commercial airports on Long Island, including Kennedy and LaGuardia and so on. Well, can you get, can you um, get it out of water? Well, we have, we're, we're getting out of our water with a very expensive water filtration system and UV light and, you yeah, know. I, and, I don't mean us personally. I mean, oh, can yeah, you get it? Yeah, I mean, but it costs a fortune. And, mm. you know, I mean, we're talking about, you know, $2.3 million per wellhead to put in all of this, uh, all of this filtration apparatus to so, remove it from the water. But of course, you know, it's always best to remove it from the source. I sure. Mean, instead of just, you know, sticking a, a Band-Aid on the problem. So I'm, I'm, is there federal legislation about firefighting foam other than military? Is there something going on that you know about? Well, as I said, for domestic airports, that was one of our efforts was um, working with people in the House and Senate legislation passed a year ago mm-hmm. that domestic airports, that would include LaGuardia and Kennedy, no longer need to use fluorinated foams. And mm-hmm. now it's up to the FAA to move to, to alternatives. In Scandinavia, Australia, and a number of other countries, they have stopped using the fluorinated foams at airports, and they're finding it's worked fine to use alternatives. So we're in process. Uh, but it's ve- it's very hopeful, and, and and it really is hopeful that the military budget said no more, no yeah. more people. Yeah. yeah, 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 it sure. is. Before that, believe it or not, it used to say that you had to use PFAS. Oh, yeah. And I used to walk around talking to people in, in, on the Hill and saying, so if there's a foam that's you know used in Scandinavia and it costs a tenth as much as our foam and it's ten times more effective, but it has no fluorinated chemicals, we can't use it in America. You know, that's wow. crazy to wow. say it has to be fluorinated. Um, and, of course, that was written by the producers of the fluorinated sure. chemicals. Sure, yeah. And the chemical uh, industry writes, yeah. writes their yeah. own legislation. Right. But the kind of good news, this might be a slightly subtle point, but I kept saying we have to allow a choice that you could either use fluorinated or non-fluorinated, depending on the situation. And then the next thing I heard, the people working on the military budget said, no choice. We're going to tell them they can't use fluorinated. And they did. So they went from you have to use it to you can't use it wow. without ever passing through. You can have a choice. There are a few right. exemptions, like for submarines and aircraft carriers. Right. But basically, right. in a couple of years, you won't be able to. So right. that's a big source of water contamination. Um, the outdoor industry really has gotten it that they've got to stop using PFAS in jackets. And a number of companies have, like, one line. Uh, I don't know if you know, we have a website. It's called PFAS Central, mm-hmm. and yep. it, it's got news, policy, science, but it has a page called PFAS Free where you can get lists of PFAS-free products. Um, so, in fact, 
it, it's, okay. This is a big deal. This is, uh, you know, this is like flame retardants. One of our board members is Leo Trasande, who is a pediatrician, but also mostly does, I mean, he's not a, working, you know, with children, but he's doing a lot of research and he's doing a lot of research on endocrine disrupting chemicals. So he was very big on flame retardants and he's also working, you know, on PFOS right now. So we, we've been kind of following this uh, closely. One of the other issues that we work on that our board is interested in having us continue to work on is synthetic turf. So we have just partnered with Mount Sinai School of Medicine to work on synthetic turf. And we find out, which you probably already know, but the plastic blades um, that are produced for these artificial turf fields contain PFAS because it makes the um, it makes them go through the extruders more easily without getting stuck. Did you know about that? I do know that. And Leo Trisande is actually partnering with uh, the head of our board on a report on the cost of inaction on PFAS. Mm. Well, that's fabulous. Okay. Mm. She wrote a report um, in Europe on the cost of inaction, you know, which was billions of dollars. Sure. And now they're doing that calculation along with Leo here right. in the U.S. That's so great. We're, we're all in the same place. <laughs> yeah, we're all in the here. same place. And, you know, Leo, is a, he, does, he does a lot on, you know, the, the, the actual cost to society for, you know, for lead contamination. And I mean, he's been on this for a long time. And this is, I think, where he's, where he's, you know, kind of made a name for himself is how much this is actually costing, not only in dollars, but in IQ points and so on, um, when you're just talking about, you know, neuro- neurotoxins. And it's an interesting, you know, way to present it. It, it actually gets the attention of a different set of people, a uh, di- different set of decision makers when they think that there's a, you know, that there's a cost involved in not taking action on some of these things. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I agree. Yeah, um, we know we also have another board member who produced the Devil We Know, which was which came before Dark Waters, which I'm sure you're also familiar with. Which is also, I am. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, you know, this has been a, a chemical of interest, you know, for us for a long time. Our listeners, you know, just I think they just need to know simple things like you know when you buy food or when you know when you buy takeout you know food from a restaurant if it's lined with this shiny paper that it probably you know contains PFAS to keep it from the oil or the grease from you know going through the container and so first we have to tell them why it's so dangerous and second we need to tell them how to avoid it. Yeah another reason these chemicals are dangerous and the flame retardants also is there this a class called organohalogen where you have carbon bonded to fluorine or chlorine, chlorine or bromine, and there are no naturally occurring molecules like that in any mammalian system. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is these molecules are not recognized by the things that keep toxics out of our cells. They can just go right in. Mm-hmm. And then there are other things that throw the toxics out of our cells, and they don't recognize them either. So that's why these you know, brominated and chlorinated flame retardants and these fluorinated stain repellent chemicals go into our bodies and they stay and and, and they cause trouble because there's just no, they're just not natural to, to mammals. Mm-hmm. So that's an, another way to think about it. And the fact that they never break down is, is a real problem, you know, in the environment. They're there forever. So they're very much better avoided. And if you actually at that sixclasses.org, there's a list of about eight consumer tips that you might find useful. And we 
had to think a long time about these tips because the problem is a lack of transparency. Mm-hmm. So they're unfortunately not usually a requirement to label. Right. Uh, personal right. hair products do have labels, and, and sadly, these fluorinated chemicals are used in a variety of cosmetics and conditioners and, and other things, but, but there will be something on the label indicating that they're there usually in those sorts of products. So they're, so they're absorbed through the skin as well as being in, accidentally ingested and, and inhaled. Some of them can be breathed, breathed in. Mm-hmm. And, and another big hint is the kind of PFAS that was always used in the past. It was called PFOA, P-F-O-A. Mm-hmm. And we stopped, we learned that it was harmful in the 60s. It got phased out in 2015. It took about 50 years. <laughs> yep. um, and so PFOA, F-O-A, is like eight carbons surrounded by fluorines, and it's no longer made. But unfortunately, the main replacement is exactly the same molecule with six carbons. Mm. And so many products will be labeled PFOA-free, the PFOA. And yeah, yeah. But, but remember, it hasn't been made since 2015 in the U.S. So pretty much everything is PFOA-free. But probably the substitute is going to be the exact same molecule with six carbons instead of eight. So I always say if something says PFOA-free, I would probably really avoid it. You yeah. know, it's that, that case of, yeah, we don't have the chemical that's banned, but, of course, we have something almost identical that isn't yet banned. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it's like BPA-free, same thing. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so yeah. we're BPA-free, which is now BPS or whatever. Yeah. yeah. You're listening to Green Street on WBAI, Doug and Patty Wood, with our special guest, Dr. Arlene Blum of the Green Science Policy Institute. You're up against a big industry that's making a lot of money from these products. Do you, are Absolutely. there ways? And, and I know that one of your concerns is influencing public policy around this. Are there other ways that you can get this done? I mean, you seem to have had some really good success without necessarily banning the chemical. Yeah, we think banning a chemical often isn't very helpful for the reason you just gave, that there's always, you know, for industry to change a process is really expensive. And so when a chemical is banned, it's not unreasonable that the chemical industry says, you know, we have a chemical that's almost identical and in structure and function, and, we, you know, there's no evidence that it's toxic. And that's the drop-in replacement, and that's what people use. So that's why banning a chemical is often not so helpful. Um, but we have found... The class concept we actually thought of was really good for for, um, business, manufacturers, retailers, big Mm -hmm. purchasers, and and we work with them. And uh, so, for example, the carpet industry first decided that they might stop using PFAS because they're big purchasers. Um, That was we were working with what we call our buyers club: Google, Facebook. all, all those people said, we, we want healthy places for our workers and our patients and sure. our students, and we don't want any PFAS in our carpets. So the first pressure can come from the purchaser. Mm-hmm. You know, if mm-hmm. I'm buying your product, I can say, I don't want any PFAS. I want to buy products without PFAS. Right. Yeah. And they I, can do yeah. that overnight, yeah. and they can do the whole class. Right. And so in terms of purchasing, you can do it fast. And government purchasing is another example. You know, the military can say or be told they can no longer purchase yeah. firefighting yeah. from 
right. people. Right. And they actually... Yeah, that, I, I mean, they, I, I actually think that it's a brilliant model that you have set up for yourself to be working with manufacturers to, you know, to educate the public, A, simultaneously while you work with the manufacturers, B, to tell them that, you know, there's going to be a, a supply and demand situation here. And, you know, this is, you know, and I don't know. Do you get do you get manufacturer to do it because it's the right thing to do? And do, you, do you ever hear that? Or is it just because um, is it a, is an economic thing for them? No, absolutely. Well, they want to do it because it's the right thing to do. Manufacturers are in the middle. Mm-hmm. So you start with big purchasers. Right. And, for example, we work with a group called Vizient that does half a hospital purchasing in the country. Right. And so if Vizient says... To the hospitals, you really want to have healthy hospitals. Um, there's a group called Healthcare Without Harm. Yep. If they say to hospitals, you really want healthy hospitals, so you don't want PFAS or flame retardants or antimicrobials unless exactly. you really need them. And the hospitals say, okay, we're not going to buy stuff. Then the furniture industry goes, great, we don't have to expose our workers. Yep. We don't have to yep. put these bad things yep. in. So, but they're, they're a little in the middle. But, like, what's happened with the furniture industry is they used to just routinely put flame retardants, PFAS, antimicrobials in furniture, mm-hmm. and you had to special order it without. Now, because uh, we and others have educated them, they routinely, standardly make their furniture without any PFAS, any flame retardants, any antimicrobials. Now, if a customer says, we really want those things, they will make them for the customer. They're in the middle. They have to do what the customer wants. Right. Sure. But they actually use some of the, like Herman Miller, I know, used our videos to help educate their sales force. Sure. So when a customer said, we want flame retardants, they might say, well, look at this video. You might not want flame retardants, you know? That's great. So, That's really great. I mean, Arlene, you've made such an impact on, on, on a shoestring, really, with your organization out there just being smart. Uh, and we're just, you know, we are really impressed and grateful uh, for the work that you've been doing. Uh, it's, it's really, you know, terrific. I hope that our listeners will, will at least go on this very simple website, sixclasses.org, and educate yourselves about the most important uh, classes of chemicals that um, we know from scientific research can have a, a, a real impact on our health and not just our health, but on future generations. Well, thank you for your kind words. And I think it's science. It's so powerful. And we just take the science and, and bring it to people who can make decisions. And yep. actually, one of my big goals now is to help get a lot more scientists doing what we're doing and thinking about science that can impact our health and environment. And then, you know, finding somehow the time and resources to go beyond just doing the science mm-hmm. to actually using the science for education. Yep. Um, so that's, that's our model, and, we you know, we really love to help more scientists to do that because science i think is basic and important yeah well no question about it and maybe in this uh with this new um administration that you know science will get back up on its pedestal where it belongs uh, in decision making um especially in our agencies that are that are that are there to protect public health like the fda and the usda and the fcc and the epa um, we just can keep our fingers crossed that we will get the right people in the right places, and science will once again you know, play a huge role there. 
I'm confident that there will be a big improvement. We have a very low bar right now. (laughs) Da-da! We sure do. About as low as you can go, right? (laughs) And, you know, a really promising sign is that Biden campaigned on reducing PFAS pollution with some very good specific steps. Um, So, you know, he knows about it. He's he's already committed to doing something about it. Good. And and I think he will. And it is a bipartisan issue. Oh, sure. I mean, all of these issues really are bipartisan issues. But, you know, what happens, of course, and as you know, you know, as well as anybody else working in Washington, the lobbyists are, are pretty powerful. I mean, we've got the, you know, we've got the telecom industry and the chemical industry and the pharmaceutical industry and the oil and gas industry. I think those are our top four. You know, they, they spend an awful lot of money influencing legislation. So I just think that you're smart. The way you're doing it is just really smart by working with manufacturers and simultaneously educating the public. It's just great. And, and there's a big component of it that you're also putting into it, which is that, you know, workers, uh, you know, these, these guys and, and, and gals who work in the, um, you know, in these plants where they're making these things are, you know, exposed constantly to really high levels. So it's an occupational exposure level, you know, problem as well. My whole thing is if decision makers know about the science, I feel that they're liable when they make, when they, you know, decide to continue exposing their, their employees. Yes, and you know, we have been really pleasantly surprised at how much government can use the class concept because we really thought government couldn't. And as it has turned out, um, as, I, as I've said, uh, that, a lot, you know, in places like the National Defense Authorization Act, which mm-hmm. is the military mm-hmm. budget, mm-hmm. Um, they have a lot of provisions around PFAS, you know, to, to tell the military, as I said, not to use firefighting foam, but also meals for soldiers. The food, the packaging has yep. to contain no PFAS. Yep. And there's a proposal for a lot of other, purchasing is a good place, military purchasing that, that um, you know, furniture, cosmetics, a lot of things purchased by the military should not contain PFAS. Yep. So this year, that provision, we just got the military budget uh, Thursday, I believe, and unfortunately, the provision isn't quite what we wanted, but I think by next year it, it will be. Mm-hmm. So, so government is using this also, yeah. and, and, and I, you know, I'm very, I'm very pleased. Good, um, good. If any of your listeners would like to learn more about these chemicals and how to be healthier by reducing their exposure, once a month we send out an e-newsletter with our favorite stories of the month. And so if they want to write me, Arlene, at greensciencepolicy.org, or actually if they go to sixclasses.org to watch our videos or learn about consumer hints for being healthier, um, they'll get a chance to subscribe. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope they try it out. They can always unsubscribe, and they can learn a lot more about these chemicals and being healthier. It's great. You know, there's a, a lot that parents need to know today to, you know, to raise healthy kids that they didn't have to even, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Unfortunately, it's just part of being a parent today. Yeah. So if there are parents listening to this show, get on that website and find out how to make your home, you know, free from some of these, uh, these dangerous chemicals that we've been talking about here. Well, Dr. Arlene Blum, thank you for being our guest on Green Street. We're really happy to have you here, honored to have you as our guest. I hope you'll come back and join us some more. I think there's there's more to this story that we want to know. I would be delighted, and thank you for your good work for uh, 
healthier world. been listening to Green Street on WBAI. Doug and Patty Wood and our special guest today, Dr. Arlene Blum of the Green Science Policy Institute. Her website again is sixclasses.org and also pfascentral.org. Sixclasses.org and pfascentral.org. If you missed any part of the show today, you can listen to the archives here at WBAI or listen again on our website, Green Street Radio where you can hear all of our previous Green Street shows, and you can also sign up for email alerts and get in touch with us directly about the show. I want to give a special shout-out to the listeners of WBAI who have been supporting the station over the past few months. These are very difficult times for everyone, including everyone here at the station. Our bills haven't stopped, and our programming hasn't stopped either, which I know is a comfort to all of you who depend on the programs you hear on WBAI to stay in touch with the real world the science-based, fact-based world of real people and real issues. If you've been thinking about contributing to the station, but you just haven't gotten around to it this year, why not make it a point to get that done today? After all, this is listener-supported free speech radio, and we depend completely on your contributions to keep the station on the air. There are many ways you can contribute to the station, and all of them are fully tax-deductible. You can make a once-a-year gift in any amount, or you can sign up to have a little bit deducted from your credit card every month. That way you won't even feel it, and the station has a steady source of dependable income. We call that being a BAI buddy, and you can do that online at WBAI.org. Or you can send a check to the station if you prefer, or whatever works for you. Again, all the details about donating are on the website WBAI.org. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of the show. Until then, please stay safe, wear a mask, and keep tuned to WBAI 99.5 FM community-supported free speech radio in New York City. <laughs>